Oh, Father, we uh, come before you this morning, Lord, and may we recognize and consider your presence with us in this room this morning. May we understand you are here, Father. May we understand that you want to draw us closer to you, Jesus, every day of our lives. May we consider your holiness. May we consider your grace. May we consider that you are worthy above all of our praise as we strive to live a life, Father, that is pleasing to you, Jesus. And may we do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let us hear what you have for us this morning, Lord. We pray these things in your holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said? Amen. I want to start this morning by reading a passage out of James, James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I think we learned some things about the subject of temptation through this passage. And here's what it says in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is, in, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. From this passage, we learn a few things about the subject of temptation. The first thing is that we learn that it is applicable to all of us. It says that, let no one say when he is tempted, not if he is tempted, not it may come, when he is tempted. In other words, every single person in this room will face temptation. If not, I mean, for me, it's not only on a daily basis, but it's multiple times a day. I, I mean, that's my own experience. Does anybody not face temptation? Just trying to see who the liars are in the congregation. The second thing we learn, it says that God tempts no man, but he is drawn away by his own desires. I think so frequently in, the, in, in our lives, we, we, we say, oh, Lord, you know, keep the devil away. Keep his the demonic realm away, you know, let them not tempt me to do this or that. And, and, and believe me, it can be true, right? They can be involved in that. I'm not saying they, they aren't. But at the same time, most frequently, I think we give Satan in the demonic realm way too much credit, way too much credit. It says that we are drawn away by our own desires and are enticed. In other words, we battle on a daily basis, not only with the demonic realm and Satan, but with a sinful nature. Number three, we learn that the temptation to sin is not sin. I think that's really important for us to understand. Oftentimes, Christians can put themselves under self-condemnation when they come into contact with something that is strongly tempting them. In other words, they, they look at something or they see something or they're feeling something, all of a sudden they start condemning themselves like, oh, if I was only more spiritual, maybe I wouldn't be tempted like that. Stop! Stop doing that, right? That, that's not okay for you to do. That is not sin. You haven't hit that point yet, 
right? Jesus was tempted in all ways, but without sin. The question becomes is how are you going to handle that when it does come? At what point does it become sin? At what point does, it, does temptation conceive sin? I heard a pastor once explain it like if you had an open hand, and this represents your will, your desires. And then, some, then this represents temptation, this fist. Temptation will contact your will. It will come into contact with your desires. This is, criti- this is a critical point because it is not sin yet. But the moment your desire and your will in your heart, in your mind, give in and embraces that temptation, that is when sin is conceived And believe me, the battle is won or lost in the realm of the will and the heart and the mind well before it begins to express itself outwardly. And you have to understand because that is the point that you have to be ready to battle battle against it. Because once it begins to express itself outwardly, just leaves a lot of pain left, guys. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Win the battle in the realm of of the will first. So... The question becomes then, how, how are we to win that battle? How are we to, when, when, when that contact is made, what can we do to prepare our heart and prepare our mind to resist temptation in our life? And I want to preach out of Genesis chapter 39 this morning because I believe Joseph has given us a flesh and blood example of how we can fight temptation. He, I, I, I don't want to use the word perfect because I don't think Joseph is perfect. But man, it's such a good template he lays out here in Genesis 39 of things we can do in our own lives to make sure we don't fall to temptation. Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 39. We're going to pick things up in verse 1 this morning. Here's what it says. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was, was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake the blessing of the lord was on all that he had in house and field so he left all that he had in joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's bought by this powerful Egyptian official, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And he says, Joseph, you're in charge of this. And he sees that he gets blessed, and he says, you're in charge of more. And he sees that he gets blessed, and he keeps doing that to the point where he puts Joseph in charge of everything he has, everything going on in his house. Literally, it says to the point where he, doesn't, he has no concern about anything except what? Just the food he eats. That's how well Joseph's running the operation there. And then it says that Joseph was handsome in form 
in appearance. He's that guy on the commercials, right? Tall, dark, handsome. Probably, probably my description in heaven one day, right? Hopefully, maybe. There's that temptation coming in, right? Pride of the flesh. Um, he's tall, he's handsome, and it says, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Lie with me. You have to understand a few things. Joseph doesn't ask for this. He was not out looking for trouble. But I want you guys to know it's not enough to not be looking for trouble. You have to be ready when trouble finds you. When temptation finds you because it will. He, she goes to Joseph and says, lie with me. Now, high-ranking, wealthy, powerful Egyptian officials did not marry homely wives very often. I'm going to tell you right now. It just wasn't their culture. His wife was good-looking. Am I doing something wrong here? All right. His wife was probably rather um, good-looking. Joseph is attractive, is attractive. Joseph, at this time, is between the ages of 17 and 20. Science tells us that a man's sexual drive peaks between the ages of 17 and 20. And his master is clueless of what's going on in his house, right? He trusts Joseph with everything. When you combine those things, I'm not sure you could have a greater temptation than what Joseph is facing. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. You're a slave, right? What, what else do you have going on in your life? And yet this temptation comes and she says, lie with me. How does Joseph handle it? We find out in verse 8, it says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And based on his response, I want to point out five things that he does that we can take notes from and apply to our own life. The first thing is that he says no. Simple, right? I heard a pastor say that a holy life begins saying no to the flesh 10,000 times a day. And, and that might be an exaggeration, but that's how it begins. And it may sound silly to ascribe nobility to something as simple as saying no until you realize how few people do it in our culture today. Jay-Z made a shirt really popular. His slogan was, do as thou will. <laughs> do it whatever you want, right? If it feels good, there's no reason you should deny yourself pleasure in this life. If it feels good, if, if you know, your heart tells you to do it, you just do it. And that's what, you, that's what our culture sells us today. To say no to the flesh is an increasingly foreign concept. But I'm going to tell you right now, that's how it begins. That's how you begin resisting temptation. Inside all of us, we have an old man. We have a new man, right? The new man 
is the new creation the Holy Spirit has made us. The old man is that old sinful nature we talked about that entices us, that's still there and will be there until the day we pass to eternity. And we battle against it. And I like to look at it as if there's two armies fighting inside of you guys. And let's say they're equal size. Which one's going to win? I'm going to tell you which one's going to win. It's going to be the one that you equip. It's going to be the one that you feed. It's going to be the one that you supply to win. And I'm telling you, if you go throughout your day and you're equipping the new person, right? You're in prayer, you're in scripture, you're worshiping God, your focus is on him, you're saying no to the simple pleasures of life when they come your way, that will starve that other army. And that, that new person will dominate your life. But I'm going to tell you right now that if you choose to give in to those things in your life, not to say no, and you, you feed that old person, that old army inside of you, that is the person that will dominate your life. So choose which one are you going to supply and equip in your life. The second thing I notice, to me it seems that Joseph thought about the consequences ahead of time. He says, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. That, that, to me, that's not an off-the-cuff response. I think he put some time into thinking about, hey, how is he going to react if this ever happens to him? And I think thinking about the consequences of your sin is important. Maybe... You can think about the top five temptations. We are all prone, all of us in this room. We're prone to certain things, and we know it. We know it. It can be different for everybody. I have met people who are not tempted by, I'll just throw an example, like by money in, in, in any way. For some reason, in their own life, in their own walk, that is just not a temptation that they have. But they are strongly tempted by pride, right? Or, or, or some other sinful thing in their life. We all have things we're prone towards, right? And I want you to take some time this morning with me, even right now. And I want you to examine your own heart. And to say for a moment, say, what, what temptations what temptations am I prone to? What things tempt me the most? Let's go now. Close your eyes for just 30 seconds here, okay? Just concentrate for a minute. Say, Lord, what do I struggle against the most? Okay. I don't know. If you thought of those too quickly, maybe we need to talk after service, right? No, I'm just joking. We should know them. We should be aware of them. We should know what we battle against. And I want you to take a moment. I don't know whether you're going to do this on a daily, on a weekly, monthly basis, but I want you to take some time in your life to sit down and say, okay, if I give in to this temptation, how is it going to affect me? Breaking up too bad? All right, I'm going to keep going because I hate mics, but if it gets too bad, just tell me, Steve, and I'll switch. 
How is it going to affect your wife? How is it going to affect your children? Oh, that simple? Okay. Let's start over. Right from the top. How's it going to affect your wife, your children, your grandchildren? How's it going to affect your ability to make a living? How is it going to affect the reputation of God, right? The minute you become a Christian, you're under the microscope, right? How's it going to represent Jesus to other people? And when you stop and think about it for a second, you think to yourself, a few minutes of pleasure could ruin my life. A few minutes of a season of giving in could hurt my children, could hurt my family. And all of a sudden, your perspective starts to shift. And no longer do you think, why can't I do this, Lord? You start to say, thank you for protecting me from this, Lord. There's a huge misconception about sin. And that is that people, especially outside of the church, People think that God just has this random list of things, and he's like, oh, these are sin, right? And it's so important to understand and to to communicate to other people that it's not bad because it's sin. It's sin because it's bad. Do you understand that? It's a huge paradigm shift in our mind, and in the mind of unbelievers. God didn't say these things are bad because he wanted to rob you of pleasure. He said these things are bad because he knows it will hurt and harm your life and its end will be death. We have to get there. The the third thing that we see take place here in, in verse 10, it says, And as she spoke to Joseph, Day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. In other words, Joseph purposefully structured his life to not needlessly be in the path of temptation. The third thing is Joseph lived far from the edge of the cliff, okay? Because if you are close to the edge of the cliff, when the wind of temptation comes, it will blow you over the edge, But if you structure your life to not be close to the edge of the cliff, that is so critical to not, when that wind comes, you can resist it, right? It's a slow fade. I think I witnessed in the life of the new believer, the radical new believer, they change their whole life. They give their life to God. Sometimes they disconnect from friendships and things that, are, are dragging them down or that cause them to sin. But something can happen as we grow in Christ. Something, I, I see this all the time in the church. I, I would even say I've seen it in myself from time to time where all of a sudden we can talk ourselves into believing, you know, I've been a Christian for a while, right? I'm more mature now. I'm stronger now. I can handle maybe being closer to the edge of that cliff now, right? Do you realize David was 50 years old when he gave in to his sin with Bathsheba? And that's exactly the reason why. He wasn't structuring his life correctly during that season. Don't do it. David writes in 
He writes in Psalm 18, I really like the way he describes this. He says, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the days of calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. When David says, he brought me out into a broad place. The whole idea behind that is that his enemies couldn't hide behind a hill or a mountain and entrap him and come upon him in surprise. That was the whole idea. It was broad. It's safe. I can see around me. And you need to put yourself in a broad place lest the enemy come on you quickly and ensnare you. I heard a man talk about this, and I liked it. He talked about, it's probably applies to me because soda is my uh, vice, right, honey? My wife does not like it one bit. But he said, he said, it's like being in front of a Coke machine with four quarters in your pocket, right? And, and then, you know, obviously the Coke representing the sin. And he's saying, you know what? You can put one quarter in And you know what? There's nothing wrong. You did nothing wrong by putting a quarter in. You can hit the return money button, boop, take your money and walk away, right? You can put the second quarter in, third quarter in. You can put the fourth quarter in, and you still have not conceived sin. You're still thinking about it. You're still, right? You're, do I really want this? Here's the fourth quarter. And I can still get my money back and walk away. But the moment I hit that button, it's too late. And I've given in. And he says the whole key is what? Not to find yourself with four quarters in front of a Coke machine. That's the key. If you're an alcoholic, you don't go to the bar for a 7-Up. It doesn't make sense. You take one quarter. I mean, structure your life. Take a quarter and give it to your pastor. And say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with in my life. And I want you to hold me accountable. I don't even want this quarter. You take it, right? Talk to your wife about it. Whatever you have to do, structure your life so you are not near that edge and you can face the wind of temptation. The fourth thing is that it takes a passion to conquer a passion. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. Notice what Joseph says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Potiphar's wife or my family or whatever? No. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what he says. Joseph realizes that his sin is not just against Potiphar, but against God. And that is the most important deterrent of them all. To think day by day how good God has been to you how holy God is, how worthy he is. And to think, I'm going to sin against him? I'm going to hurt his heart? God loves you. Do you understand that when the Bible says God loves you, it makes God vulnerable? That might be a foreign concept to some of us. But I will tell you this, it is impossible to love without making yourself vulnerable to hurt. And when God loves us and we sin, we hurt the heart of God. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. 
Joseph could have what? He could have felt sorry for himself, right? Has anybody ever noticed a victim mentality today that permeates not only our society, but also the church? Joseph could have easily said, sold me into slavery. Here I am with nothing. I have no family. Everything's been stripped from me. What is stopping me from taking this pleasure? With my, my master will never find out about it. But he loves God. Psalm 97.10 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Our passion for God should drive a hate for sin, a hate for it. Verse 11, it says, But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Lesson number five is kind of an odd one. I hope you never have to use it. It's run. That's what it is. I don't know what situation you'll be in. But if you are ever in a situation where temptation comes, you're not expecting it, and it just grabs you by the garment. I mean, it grabs you. Lie with me. I want you to know that it is perfectly okay to run no matter the consequences. When Joseph ran, what did it lead to? Him being butt naked, right? Out there. And yet he still knew what was right. And he did what was right. Because when you know what is right, you always do what is right. No matter the embarrassment it costs you. No matter what other people will think about you. No matter... Who cares what they think about you? It's what God thinks about you that matters. And there, will, there might come a day when temptation comes so close to you that it grabs you by the garment and you may think, if I don't give in to this, I'm going to look bad. If I don't give in to this, I'm going to be embarrassed and people are going to come to the wrong conclusions about me. But I am telling you to do what is right there and you allow God to take care of the rest because he will. He will do it. You run if you need to run. Some people continue to read this, right? And they say, again, they go back to it and they say, well, Cody, I know you say Joseph is this example, but do you understand at the end of this what happens to Joseph? And I do. And let, let's just read through what happens to him. It says in verse 13, it says in as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Now, I want to pause right there because I want to talk about what we don't hear, what we don't see recorded in this story. 
I want you to notice that when she leaves and she cries out and she tells all these people that Joseph tried to rape her, but she cried out that not a single one speaks up. I want you to read that when she tells everybody this, there's not a single person there that says, somebody run and go get Potiphar and tell him what he did to his wife. Nobody goes and gets Potiphar when, when these, this happens. Instead, we see something quite different happen. It says, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. No one even went to get him. They just waited for him to come home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment and be, um, beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger kindled. And Joseph's, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So Potiphar takes Joseph, and he puts him in prison. Now, here's what you have to know, that the Egyptian culture was not like our American culture. You didn't get to rape somebody, and maybe you don't even get 20 years. Okay? And if you were a slaved race, an inferior race in the Egyptian's mind, and you tried to rape a high-ranking Egyptian official's wife, what do you think is going to happen? They are going to relieve you of your head. That is what will happen in that culture. And I say that because I strongly believe, based on this reaction, I don't think Potiphar believed a word of it. And I don't think anybody else believed a word of it. I think he knew Joseph and he knew his wife. And he says, yeah, I could have Joseph killed for this pretty easily, but I don't believe her. And what does he do? He goes and he takes Joseph and he puts him in prison. Who runs the prison? Potiphar. Potiphar runs the prison. And do you know what's going to happen to Joseph before long? Guess who's going to be running the prison? Joseph's going to be running the prison because he has, his character was above reproach. And when your character is above reproach, your character defends itself. That's what happens. Your character will defend itself. God will defend you. And, and, and Joseph, here's the, here's the crazy part. First, God says, I'm going to make you a slave and I'm going to put you in charge of everything that Potiphar has. In other words, he says, Joseph, I'm going to teach you about the Egyptian business system. I'm going to teach you how a, how a household runs, how to manage resources. Then God takes Joseph and he puts him in prison and Joseph's going to be running the prison. He says, you know what, Joseph, now I'm going to teach you about the Egyptian criminal justice system. Because right after this, do you know what Joseph's going to become? The second most powerful man on earth right next to Pharaoh. That's where he will end up. And what Joseph may not realize at the time is everything he's going through 
is experience and preparation for what God has ultimately called him to be. God called Joseph to be a faithful slave. God called Joseph to be a faithful prisoner. And then he's going to call Joseph to be the second most powerful man on earth at that time, right next to Pharaoh. And you know what? Joseph might have ruined it all if he would have given into that temptation and lied with Potiphar's wife. My encouragement to you would be maybe you don't see what God is preparing you for. In fact, I would probably say that most of the time we don't see what God is preparing us for. You wouldn't see it if you were a slave. You wouldn't see it if you were a prisoner. But whatever he's doing in your life, he's doing to prepare you for your calling. And you cannot allow temptation to creep in and jeopardize that calling that you have upon your life. Don't do it. Not for a few moments of pleasure or greed or lust or pride or whatever it is. Don't let it ruin it. Don't become disqualified. I just want to close with the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all run, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do not become disqualified. Do not ruin your testimony. Fight temptation. Take the the lessons Joseph has taught us here and apply them purposefully in your own life. Because I am telling you guys, God has a plan for every one of you. I don't know what it is, but we need to be faithful to him, right? Amen. Let's pray. And then um, actually, will the worship team come up? We're going to pray and... We're going to play one last song, and, and I can tell you, I know from firsthand experience how hard it can be to resist temptation, and I know, I know that we're not perfect in it. I get it, and, and, I, and I thank God that his grace is enough to overcome it when we're not, amen? But I'm going to invite Steve up here, and I'm going to be up here too. And I, I just want you to feel free. If there is, if you need prayer to help fight temptation in your life, I want you to feel free to come up and get prayer for that. I'm not asking you to tell me what's tempting you. I'm not asking you to identify whether it's greed, lust, pride, um, selfishness, what, you know, whatever it might be. I'm asking you to come up, talk to us, and allow us to pray over your life so that we do not become disqualified. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and and I just ask, Father, for everybody here this morning, Lord, that we will be empowered by your Holy Spirit, and we will learn the lessons of Joseph, and we will allow you to dominate our lives, Lord. 
We will allow you, Father, to, to come in and, and lean on you to resist temptation, Lord. Whenever we face temptation, may not be about us, may not be about I or my or me, but may be about you and your spirit and your strength and your reputation and your goodness and your love and your grace, Lord. May we have eyes to see that this morning, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.